0: What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Apira. An inmate at the California State Prison. San Quentin, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row without a gang, without a group of people around me. was just
1: me. Soon after you went into to be on death row... Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William McGarrow. And today we have the case of Harrison Graham, whose nickname is Marty. Haven't quite figured out that part, but there's a lot about this guy that's questionable. We'll get into that. Bill, first, you wanted to give an update about the missing girl Exactly
0: yes, uh, Kylie Rodney, who disappeared uh, a couple weeks ago um, after being at a kind of a camping party type of festival thing, um, her her SUV has been found. Um, they believe that the body that they found in the car is hers. There is not a hundred percent confirmation of that. Um, and it's a very sad. Moment. There's a person who's died. They found her in the lake inside of her car, and her car was upside down yesterday. Uh, news media and news outlets uh, had a update on it. And it turns out that these cold case uh, investigators by the name of adventurers with purpose or adventures with purpose are the ones who Discovered the car after going into the lake with sonar and special divers. They were able to locate the car. Now there is a bit of, you know, problems with this situation because um, some people in law enforcement had given the green light or the uh, the update that that lake had been searched, and it turns out that. They didn't do a good job, and these cold case investigators who are not paid for their job, they're volunteers, they're known to have closed about 20 odd cases in cold cases in the past couple of years, are the ones who came in, found the car, found the body, and then contacted law enforcement. And of course, you know, when you up one up somebody, sometimes there are attitudes, but. I think the most important part, Matt, in all this is that we've found the vehicle and at least we are partially certain that uh, Kylie has been located and we'll know more about that later. But uh, look, this is a good time, I think, Matt, to let everybody know that just because someone says they searched a certain area for a missing person, I believe that that person deserves our best and if you have to search twice, maybe three times,
1: Do so, right? Yeah, so these guys show up. The police are telling them. The authorities, you know, police, other authorities are telling them to go away, get out of here, which I kind of get because you get some yahoos out there, but it's like these guys have all this equipment, and they're assured that this area had been searched at this little body of water, and they do it anyway, and in half an hour, they find her. You know, and now law enforcement wants to like try and implicate them perhaps or throw a little shade on them i mean they're from oregon but i unless there's any evidence that any of them had any connection to this 16 year old girl which seems pretty dubious then it seems like they're just getting kind of thrown under the bus for doing a good thing i, I agree 100
0: I, I really have a problem with that and um yeah they should be praised as doing what citizens should do in the situation and now they're being thrown kind of under the bus let me call back
1: Yeah, and authorities quoted this number as part of their kind of trying to tell these guys how their search is unnecessary. They said, you know, we've already spent twenty thousand man hours looking for her. I did some quick math, and that would be eight hundred and thirty people working twenty four hours a day. And this was just last week, so is that possible? Yeah. and, and, and that's part of the problem that
0: we have sometimes. You have people, bureaucrats in law enforcement who say, hey, we want you to do this. And look, sometimes people don't do what they're told to do. And they figure, look, you know, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out or whatever. And these, these mistakes happen. And we, this happens a lot in cold cases. This happens a lot in murder investigations where you where you're relying on someone to do something Maybe even the higher arts of the law enforcement have given the order to search that lake, and obviously someone did not do it. Or if they did do it, they're incompetent. And when citizens step up, like these people who are these cold case finders and and investigators, they do the job, and they do it correctly, and they get results. We should not look at them like they're one-upping somebody. This isn't a contest. We're looking for a child, and this is what the, the... you know, I always come off and I say, look, I'm a common sense guy. But I don't care who's right or who's wrong. As long as the job is getting done, the child has been found, you know, and we shouldn't be pointing fingers at that point. So, I mean, that's what I have to say about it. I, I really hate this back and forth And now you have, you know, particular people in law enforcement are putting shade on these on these, these citizens who are doing the best they can. I mean, you, you and I have talked about this before, Matt, where... Look, put down your freaking phone. Stop taking video. Get your hands dirty and help a little bit instead of sitting back, playing armchair
1: quarterback, and nothing getting done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these guys aren't just total randoms. You know, they've done a lot of this, and they they're professionals. I'm I'm assuming they have a business where they do dives for other purposes, but. I mean, why not allow them to help? It's ridiculous. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash Death Diaries where you will get access to exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else. And we do appreciate our subscribers very much. On a side note, if you hear a dog barking, ignore it. I'm getting new windows installed in my home and the, the current windows are very porous and cheap and hence you might hear a, a dog every now and then. So, you know, that's just part of the whole experience, Bill. Now, we have a listener-submitted question before we get into our case on Harrison Graham. The uh, I don't know why he wasn't called the Cookie Monster Killer. All right, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So, Joe in new zealand asks bill i'm sure prison changes a person hopefully for the better but it depends on the person i guess despite the length of time you've been inside how different a person are you from when you first arrived i'm sorry if you've been asked this many times but i thought i'd ask it anyway very nice message from joe yeah, no, it's, it's a
0: good question. Um, and it's a very interesting question because I came to prison at such an early age. I was a teenager. So, of course, there's a drastic change between William Nogueira now and William Nogueira, who was a teenager. And it's, it's just, a, in that, it's really just maturing. And you can mature in prison and not really get become a better person. So I guess the question is, it's a little difficult to answer, but I've matured in a lot of ways. I've grown up, I see things differently. I see things from a perspective of an adult rather than a child. But there's also the issue of, of you know, social justice and some of the activist or activism that I like to work in, one of them being cold cases and uh, researching uh, serial killers to help the public. So my biggest change is that uh, I'm less selfish and more about trying to give information the situation i talk about it being an experience that could help people if there's value in what i do because i bring to the table 40 years of experience that most people that have been in prison that long can't talk about it don't
1: want to talk about it or don't have the facility to do so yeah so the short the short end of that question is I've changed because my perspective has changed,
0: and that perspective now is very much infused and very much towards helping general society understand this experience, because one in four people in the world, in the United States, knows someone in prison. So that's how my biggest change and contribution is, is in giving someone a real view of what goes on in these prisons and the
1: justice system altogether yeah thanks for the question if you listeners have any feel free to submit them to the instagram and facebook accounts that i just mentioned we do look at them and we appreciate you guys sending us stuff now bill let's talk about harrison graham this guy is an enigma i think in my research i can't exactly figure out what the hell is going on it's incredibly disturbing uh a lot of times when you hear enigma you think of someone who's kind of dynamic but this isn't that there's just like so many variables for this guy and why he ended up doing what he was doing he's a weird guy let's get into this what's going on yeah that's a good
0: question this guy right here is i guess enigma wrapped in a paradox is probably a good way of looking at this guy you know, he's, his name is Harrison Frank Marty Graham. That's his nickname, Marty. I don't know how he got Marty. Um, he's known as the Corpse Collector. And this guy's born September 9th, 1959. He's an African American, he's black. Um, and his killing spree is basically one year, but it's not what he that baffles people so much, because we've seen cases like this before, it's his, I guess his complete metamorphosis in a very short period of time. He's not like most serial killers we've talked about. And we have experts who say, well, it's their childhood and that's why they are who they are. And I always argue that they were wired a certain way and they respond to triggers or different situations differently killer killers you by killing people rather than becoming athletes or becoming alcoholics or whatever it's all about how you're wired this guy gives no indication of that there are suggestions that he was you know mentally or intellectually challenged that's a politically correct word for saying freaking retarded but that doesn't seem to be true it seems to be more that his family puts that out to maybe soften the blow of who he
1: was, do you get that from him too, uh, Matt? I don't know because the image that I'm getting in a lot of the reading is yes, that he is essentially Lenny from *Of Mice and Men*, and that he's he was seen, you know, digging holes and stuff in the ground by the neighborhood kids. He he carried this cookie monster stuffy everywhere with him and on the other hand he kind of liked getting high and doing drugs and dealing drugs and I think he was you know smart enough to do handyman work and be very social and sociable so I really don't know I don't know what's true and you know what what's not like how much of it is part of the defense I'm sure he's not a genius but He's somewhere between retarded and just towny dirtbag, but I don't know where that line is. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the
0: eldest of five kids, and um, he shows very on, very early on signs of intellectual disability. But he attends high school. He does drop out after the 10th grade because of he's just failing every class. But that seems to be suggested it's more about him failing because he was never at school because according to certain people in his family but this has never been substantiated that he was placed in a mental institution for almost two years but again this is not substantiated the court record of his trial does not suggest this doesn't even prove it usually a defense attorney will grab this and say look he's been in mental institutions here are the records from the psychiatric evaluations we have nothing like this I think you're right. He was too he was slow. But there is no signs of anything that would suggest that this guy could be violent. There are no torturing animals. There's no lighting fires. This guy is running around the neighborhood peeping, like a peeping tom. He's not grabbing women. He's not assaulting women. There is there is nothing in his record that suggests that he could be violent. Quite the opposite. His neighbors say he's a very affable guy, hardworking. Leaves his home in 1979 to become a construction worker, where he is praised for his work, his dedication. He is he pays his rent on time. He is responsible. His friends, his friends, his neighbors think highly of him. There are no signs of anything. It almost takes eight years after leaving his home in 1986, 1987 that things change. Now, we've we've heard about schizophrenic people that at the age of thirty-one suddenly they start hearing voices. Suddenly all these things happen. His behavior suggests that his mental problems have to do maybe with a late ensemble type of schizophrenic episode where he is maybe directed by somebody to do something, or a voice, an instinct.
1: Nothing else explains it. No, and this is the age where schizophrenia will start to rear its head and someone will start to show symptoms frequently. I'm also seeing that apparently he was groomed and I guess raped as a teenager by a pimp because I guess he was involving himself in drug dealing activities. I don't know if that's true, or if that could explain, like, maybe a repressed memory, a sudden snap, um... Yeah, those are all suggestions
0: that are given, but during his trial, where he basically pled guilty to everything, there is no, nothing substantiates these rumors. And so we can't just go by rumors because, as we know, sometimes family members, friends, they're trying to make excuses or soften the blow of someone's actions by saying, well look, you know, he was a great guy he had these problems and he was raped as a child or he did this as a child and this explains why he lashed out. I tend not to believe that this guy was wired from the beginning that he was quiet, sociable uh, I believe that it was just a hidden trigger that hadn't been touched yet and when it did get flipped on because he's wired this way, he explodes into this uh, chasm of violence, which I believe, which I believe, by the way, Matt, that happened because of drug use. See, drug use can be that open door, that door that opens a passage into someone's uh, road to violence or to certain actions that you normally wouldn't see. With this guy, he went in disability. Uh, he was receiving benefits from the government because he couldn't work any longer. And he basically went into an apartment building where there wasn't really a lot of normal action, a lot of pimps, a lot of prostitution, a lot of drug use, and it suggests that he was taking Ritalin. And he was dealing the Ritalin to different people as well as using other drugs. This seems to suggest that this is that threshold that... Got him maybe to the next level. He stopped taking his rhythm. Really, he stopped taking these drugs that he's supposed to for whatever mental issue he had because it's not clear. And suddenly he finds himself hearing voices and being propelled to do these things that, he, that he's really naturally born to do.
1: Let me call back. All right. I mean, personally, I see a red flag in the fact that he's being commended so highly for doing these grunt work jobs and these these labor-ready jobs, you know, because, look, if you're doing a job, it's my opinion, even if it sucks, if you're demolishing a brick wall in the hot sun for $8 an hour, try and do a good job. It's just, it's the right thing to do. It's better for your self-worth. But if you're... That's very different from being excited about it, you know, because I, I knew a guy like that when I was working on the lumber yard. Like, he would show up, and his hair was styled really nicely, and I think he had spent at least, like, two weeks' salary on some new boots that he used at the job, and I was convinced he was a serial killer, I swear to God. <laughs> you're, you're beginning to see serial killers everywhere. We're going to have to run, have a new podcast called Matt Sees Serial Killers and Everybody. <laughs> So this guy settles into a debaucherous, poverty-stricken, urban decay, just a grimy, welfare, cracky existence in this extremely shitty apartment. Yeah.
0: Well, he doesn't help either because he seems to match this thing. But again, he's still a very nice guy, but suddenly in 1987, things go really weird and the thing is no one knew this guy was doing this so while he was being a nice guy and helping people and doing stuff he was had he was a serial killer and no one even suggested that women were missing from around the neighborhood no one was looking at him this suddenly happened because of one issue man and that issue is that his neighbors Began to smell extremely foul odor coming from his apartments. and that's what started this whole
1: uh, discovery of who this guy really was. Yeah. So from what I understand, and this is off Cecil B. DeMille in in Philly. So his apartment building was uh, one of those you could you could call it a tenement, but w- what do you call the? Um, like that area filled uh philly baltimore of uh, uh, townhouses pretty much and so his the back of his flat faced a parking lot and i guess the whole area was in such disrepair and everything that the residents there would just build a wall kind of a uh, makeshift wall between the parking lot And their homes So I think essentially one of his rooms Was a converted parking lot Just to give you an idea of what we're working with here And that's where They found uh, The bodies once they Once they broke in Right Well yeah But the whole How this thing builds up today It's just incredible because you know
0: There's a time period The, The neighbors are complaining about the foul smell So his landlord comes and tells him Hey Listen, uh, freaking Marty, uh, the smell, what is it? I mean, it's it's horrible. And he basically ignores, you know, doesn't say anything, goes to his apartment, closes the door. And this goes on for a, a period of time until finally the landlord comes back and says, look, this is your eviction notice. You've got to come out of here. And they're banging on his door, trying to get in. And how does he respond? This guy brings boards in and boards up his front door so no one can get through it. So the landlord's upset. So the landlord is now at a point where he needs to get this guy out of the house. He knows something's going on, so he calls the police department. Marty knows they've done this, so he basically does a exit stage left, out the back fire escape from this apartment complex. And what does he grab? This is the, this is where I guess, you, you see this thing you say, okay, you can tell this guy's got serious issues. He grabs a few things, but the most important thing he grabs is this freaking doll. It's a Cookie Monster doll. And you're right. Why don't they call him the Cookie Monster Killer? I don't know. They Rather, they call him the Corpse Collector, and we'll get into that in a minute. But he grabs the Cookie Monster Batman's his way out of the back escape, fire escape, and disappears into the night. Police get there. They're knocking on the door. They don't know he's gone. So at some point, they draw weapons and they bust down the door. What they find when they open... They find a room that looks more like a dump. There's half a foot to a foot of garbage across the entire floor of the apartment. He's living like a schizophrenic. And that's why I refer to schizophrenia sitting in between the ages around 29 to 33. And this is the age that he is around this time. So he immediately, the police walk into things, guns drawn, and what do they find? Right in front of them is a nude body of an African-American woman. And she's right there on the floor. She's dead. She's decomposing. And it, it just it shocks the police officers, but they continue to look into the apartments, And they find inside of another uh, door, another partially dressed deceased corpse that's decomposing as well. So, of course, the smell is coming from these corpse. And... The whole apartment's full of trash. It's like it's, it's not even a, a crash pad. It's a drug den is what it is. And these people obviously were using drugs, or at least he was, while he dr- brought these women in. So they go into a closet, and they find another corpse. It's it's in the closet. It's de- decomposing. And it just goes on from there, Matt. They find a rolled blanket, and it has more skeletonized remains. And now they've called in a search team. They've brought in the uh, forensic teams. They've brought in all these people you see in movies like S- uh, CSI and stuff. And they began to search the entire complex, the roof, the basement. And of course, look, he's got a in role here. They find a duffel bag, a green duffel bag. And inside of it, they find the hand, feet, legs, and another... Uh, murder murder victim in this they go into the basement, they find a skull rib cage, pelvic bones of another victim most of the remains are so badly decomposed they really don't know how the person was killed but the one they found first they could tell that they were strangled to death so you have all in all seven corpses in this guy's apartment in his basement and on his roof Is that sick or
1: what? Yeah. So I think I have a somewhat insightful observation here. Now, you said he's living like a schizophrenic, which is true. But he's also living like a crackhead. Now, if you smoke enough crack, you will start displaying schizophrenic symptoms. On the other hand, plenty of schizophrenic people also decide... To smoke crack, uh, maybe because it's a form of self-medication. And then uh, those are the people that you see out on the street here in Los Angeles uh, pretty much anytime you go somewhere. My thought was perhaps he's too disorganized to really be a serial killer because the way I'm reading this, if he would have just packed up all these body parts... You know he's this big, strong guy. Thrown him into a couple suitcases. I feel like maybe he could have got away with this.
0: Well, I think that's part of his schizophrenia. I I think he kept the bodies there, well, for his own reasons. No one really knows. Every serial killer is different. I have studied. I've been around, you know, dozens of serial killers. Each one of them had a different take as to why they did what they did. A lot of them don't understand why they're so. Impulsive to do this, or there's that tick that they have to do this. I believe that it's just part of his mental state. The drug use obviously affected him. But I've also known schizophrenics that are control freaks and that they're OCD and they clean everything. I, there's guys in prison here that, that are schizophrenic and their cells look like they, it can scrub with a, with a freaking hot wire pad. Everything is so perfect. Everything is clean. Everything's organized. So this guy obviously did not have OCD. He had possibly ADHD and, and, and schizophrenia as well as a number of other paranoid delusions. Um, look, people you don't kill someone and then live with that person. And the body is decomposing the whole time. The smell, the – can you imagine the maggots, the, the insects, the rats that this stuff brought into the house? And this guy's living in it. He has serious mental problems but aside from that this guy was already wired to kill. this is what he did and uh, you know they they can't find him. He, he's disappeared but it takes about a few weeks and he pops up at his mother's house and she persuades him to, to surrender himself to law, uh, to law enforcement. Which he does. They basically pick him up walking a few blocks from his house and he basically just confesses to all the murders right away. He did say that he strangled each and every one of the women. He said that he used drugs with them and that he had sex with them. Um, There are also, uh, at least this is my theory here, I don't believe that the sex was consensual. I believe that he raped these women and I also believe that once the bodies are the there and they were dead I believe that he also is a necrophiliac. The reason I say this is because he kept the body very close to them until they were so decomposed he couldn't keep them anymore he put them someplace else. The roof the basement. The ones that were still partially complete he kept them in the room with him would suggest to me that he was having sex with the corpses long after they were
1: dead. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is another thing that's just difficult to figure out because a lot of people say he was a homosexual. I think like essentially every single serial killer that we've witnessed was sexually confused or bisexual you know which isn't really relevant if you're an accountant but you know because he, yeah, he could no, have I mean, found plenty of male drug addicts to have sex with too but these are all women so it's weird
0: well he could have been having sex with men and we don't know about it just decide not to kill the men maybe they're too strong maybe there's a number of different reasons as i said it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly the reasons why a person acts the way they do especially if there's serial killers they have such underlined mental issues You know, we're never going to understand why someone kills once you can, you can understand for revenge you can understand killing for uh, a robbery, burglary you understand that those things are components of another crime but to kill just to kill and then have to do it over and over and over living with the corpses this is a very underlined mental issue this guy has that he may be uh, bisexual really isn't relevant, in my opinion. Here, what's relevant is the reason that he killed, and we're never going to know 100% unless someone is around him enough to really understand him. But with this guy, because he had such underlying mental issues, he could give a complete different. Uh, he would get a different diagnosis just by because he doesn't even know how to explain himself and his actions wouldn't be consistent with the diagnosis so you, do you understand that if the person is partially normal you can have a normal conversation you can exact a lot of information for him behavioral traits where you can make the uh, classified opinion as to why he does what he does with this guy you can't
1: let me call back hey man yeah so regarding that they're going to put forth this theory of multiple personality disorder now called disassociative identity disorder. And this is very controversial. Uh, a lot of people say it doesn't exist. Uh, a lot of people that claim to have it are con artists. My theory is it does exist. It's called schizophrenia. And so Harrison's public defender, whose name is Joel Moldowski kind of put forth this theory and broke it down that he had three personalities. This was Marty, who was the easygoing handyman, and he uh, was a religious guy who loved his mother, and I guess that was the guy everyone knew. Then there was Junior, who had the more childlike personality, and he was the one who was... Uh, you know took comfort in the cookie monster thing and then finally frank and frank is the one we don't like that's the murderous necrophiliac so what do you think of this theory bill well i'll
0: break it down in really basically one compound word bullshit i'll tell you why I love when defense attorneys do this stuff because it always gives me a platform and call them a bunch of freaking dummies. Here's why. He put that out there just to make his client look a little bit better, and I get that. Hey, I would have done the same thing. However, I would have researched it a little bit closer. Here's why this is not true. If there are three personalities, here's the problem. Let's say there is Frankie and Marty and whoever else. They don't – that doesn't exist because it's one guy – who has a very uh, aggressive personality and he has moments because of drugs or whatever, it's not a multiple personality because he still lives in the same place. If there was a Marty and a Frank and someone else, the one person or the one personality would be offended by living within trash and all this stuff. The other one would be offended by the women's bodies that are dead and would have a problem with that. He would have to live as the necrophili- necrophiliac killing machine all the time which suggests there are not three personalities, but one, because of his living condition. When you have a person with multiple personalities, they tend, and we've seen it before, and it's based on the diagnosis of a psychiatrist. You have a person who is like Norman Bates. He he dresses like his mother, and while he's in that personality, he has the dress on the wig, and he acts like a mother. We've also seen it in that movie um, where you have... um, Unbreakable. We have that guy playing. The guy's got all these multiple personalities, and when he's in that personality, he acts, he speaks, and everything like that person. If that is true, which it is with multiple personalities, when that person is in the other personality, he would be offended by living in that trash hole, whatever it was. That's why I don't believe that's true. The guy had mental problems. There's no doubt. Every serial killer has mental problems. We seem to be more sympathetic to the ones that have more severe mental problems, which is that they can't function in normal society. But the ones that are very calculated, they're very aggressive, and they're almost acting normal, we tend to hate them more or like them more because they're so deviant and they're so clever. So we don't look at them as having a mental issue, but they do. The fact that they're killing people in a serial killer fashion for sexual or or control issues or, or, or different kind of gratification tells you that. But we as a public look at it different. This guy right here is more sympathetic. And, you know, there is this part of him that, of course, all of us have childlike qualities. Uh, every mother who has a son who's this hitman will tell you he's a great child. Everybody has, you know, when he was sentenced by the way, he was sentenced to six death penalty, death sentences plus one life sentence. And as he's being sentenced, I think you know about this, Matt. He asks his lawyer to give him his Cookie Monster doll because he wants it. Of course, that's very sympathetic. We don't know what happened in that conversation. Did he ask for a Cookie Monster um, doll? Eh, his actions suggest that he probably did. Because he left his apartment at and he took that with him. Maybe he asked his lawyer to give him a knife so he can kill somebody else. I don't know, we don't know what's true there. But I think what is true, and we should not forget in this situation, is that there were seven young women that were murdered. And I I would like to, by the way, mention them because this isn't really all about the serial killer, although people are very interested. It's about the victims too. So Matt, um, the first one was Cynthia Brooke. She was 27 years of age. There was Valerie Jameson, who was 25. Mary Mathis, who was 36. Barbara Mahoney was 22. There was Robert DeShazer, who was 29, and his girlfriend, by the way. Sandra Garvin, 33, and Patricia Franklin, who was 24. Those are the victims of uh, Harrison, Graham, And we should not forget them in all this ordeal. Although he is as interesting as he is as a subject, we should always pause and understand that seven women lost their
1: lives in this. Yeah. Yeah, most certainly. So I guess the crux of this that you, in terms of how much of a monster this guy is because he is a monster, but to what degree, you know, was he aware of what he was doing? That's the whole question, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. And with this case, it suggests that maybe he was acting out in that delusion of schizophrenia, that maybe he's a bit less culpable than a person who's very calculated, very organized. This guy was not organized. This is a classic case of a disorganized serial killer if he killed multiple women, but he didn't go out hunting. He didn't do the stalking, the, the process of studying the mark. This is a more of a crime of opportunity. He's a disorganized guy. Um, so we tend to be a little more uh, sympathetic to, at least that maybe he didn't know. We, we really don't know exactly, but I would, if, if you asked me for my opinion, I would say that he acted out in that delusional state and in that schizophrenic, delusional state, he did so, and he stayed in that state. He was suffering from severe schizophrenia, and that's why you see the house the way it was. Uh, the bodies are still living there. And he was – look, there's no way this guy could be cured of this. There's no way this guy could be let out again. Because he – by the way, his sentence was committed to just life in prison. But this is the kind of guy that if you let him out – it would only take a certain amount of time for him to continue to do what he does because he's wired that way. So, yeah, that's my my take on who he is. Is he less culpable? Maybe. Seven murders, that's a lot. Uh, whether we want to sympathize a little bit because of his mental state or not, at this point, doesn't matter. Seven lives are taken, he can never be let out. And some would argue that maybe he
1: should be put down because of the type of raging lunatic that he is. Yeah, based on what you're saying, it reminds me of a story of a guy named Tim McLean who was a oil field worker who was taking a Greyhound bus through Canada, and a guy in front of everyone, uh, all the other passengers on the bus took out a hunting knife and um, sawed his head off unfortunately, and the guy that did that is named Vince Lee, and Canada let him out of prison unsupervised, uh, you know, because he was found mentally ill. And I think he's going to do something again, and uh, that's why I don't think these kind of guys should be let out. Whether you know they were aware of what they were doing or not, it's immaterial to me. I I don't want them in the society that I'm living in.
0: Uh, you're right. There, I don't think there's any parole board in the world that's going to let a guy out like this that has these type of murders where there really is no reason for him doing it. Parole boards, people in law enforcement, people in a position of authority corrections understand that if a guy, a teenager, or whatever, kills somebody, it's for revenge, it's a gang situation. There's a, a, a logical reason, although murder is illogical, but you can understand why he did it. When you have these type of serial killers that kill because... It's what they do rather than a reason. It's just, well, she was wearing a pair of high heels and reminded me of this, that, and it made my brain do X, Y, and Z, and I killed for that reason. That's not really a logical reason, and I don't think they'll let any of these guys out for that reason. Now, if someone, a parole boy does, shame on you because uh, it's obvious that
1: these type of killers are going to kill again, and they don't stop. It's hard when I'm trying to decipher all the stuff that's written about Graham, which is from the late 80s mostly. So they say he was well-liked by people in the neighborhood. I'm thinking this is a big guy with crazy eyes who is walking around quoting the Bible, befriending small children, and of course carrying the Cookie Monster doll uh, seems real creepy to me. I don't know. Am I missing something? So is that just how they were characterizing him? or I know this was tail end of crack epidemic uh, ghetto Philadelphia, but still, I, I'm, that guy doesn't seem like uh, the type of guy you'd want around the neighborhood to me. Well, you're absolutely right. And,
0: and, and it's actually kind of a, a joke in prison, at least in convict yards, that and people see somebody and they said yeah if I saw that in my guy in my neighborhood I'd snatch his ass up and that's what guys in prison saying what they mean is that like you mentioned he's a creepy guy you could see something's wrong with him and sooner or later a child is going to be abducted. A woman's going to be taken somewhere and killed, raped or whatever. So the guys in prison who are convicts, who see these kind of guys, they always make the comment, yeah, I just snatched that guy up. And what it means is they snatch him up, take him somewhere, and kill him because before he kills somebody else. So he was pretty obvious. Um, there's something definitely wrong with this guy, and I think that's the reason that I mentioned a, a sympathetic... A viewpoint of him because he's so uh, so damaged, and, and he's not this calculated guy. Set a lot, but he's not like say Dahmer or BTK or or, or or these guys that you see do this and they, they're planning it. They're very organized in how they kill. This guy's not that way, and because of mental illness, people tend to tend to look at him a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, but yeah, this guy, you see in a neighborhood, you've got to get him out of that neighborhood because sooner or later, something's going to happen where there's going to be missing kids or missing young women or something. And I know that's almost stereotypical, but look,
1: what's the alternative is that we bust on his door a year later and we find seven bodies in his living room, right? Yeah. And a lot was made of the fact that he lived, depending on the reports, a mile or three miles away from... One of those guys you mentioned, a Dahmer type guy, which is Gary Hednick. And he's one of the worst of the worst, really scary serial killer dismemberment type of guy. And, uh, you know, his his story is is a lot. Maybe we'll check into that sometime. But there's no real connection. So I, I don't totally see the point of making it. But they're insinuating some connection in a lot of these stories. To me, it just goes to show that there's... A decent amount of these guys out there yeah so I don't think there's really anything there it's a coincidence that two guys were doing kind of the same thing in the same city but that's about it right yeah no the, the other serial killer I don't think
0: has anything to do with this guy they're totally two different animals and when they have two different animals like that one was completely disorganized the other was very organized they wouldn't mesh well they end up killing each other so there's nothing there, but I mean, what do you think cookie monster or the corpse collector? Which, which one's, I, I think corpse collector sounds more intriguing, but the cookie monster. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting
1: one, too, right? If you're just looking for headlines, which I think was the point I would go with the cookie monster killer because the corpse collector It almost seems kind of bygone and Victorian to me for some reason.
0: Yeah, well, uh, well, we'll disagree on it. Well, I like Corpse Collector in terms of a name. That's, I mean, that's pretty serious. I mean, Corpse Collector, and he finds seven bodies in his in his apartment. Kind of lives up to it. But yeah, that's the story of this guy here. Um, he's not what you call the most interesting guy in the world. Um, something to talk about. Um, definitely a case of seven murders, so it is a serial killer. But. Um, yeah, if you guys have any questions about this guy or any other people, please ask them. And if we're a little slow on answering the questions, you know, you can blame Matt. Um, you know, he is uh, the producer of the show and he does a lot of the work. Well, he does all the work when it comes to putting stuff together. I just did the research and um, the other voice on the side of the channel. But uh, we will get to them, and we, we are inundating a lot of questions, so we'll definitely get to them.
1: What about the crack house killer? Kind of a race-baiting <laughs> Fox News, you know, scare the hell out of the white people type thing.
0: Yeah, you're not going to let this one go, are you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right.
0: Yeah, a crackhead killer. That's a good one. Yeah, we we'll are going to look into that one.
1: We'll be back next time with another profile. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston.
0: And I'm William Durham. Stay safe. Your surroundings, your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.